1: Hey guys, we are continuing on with our Encore episodes, some of the most listened to and most loved episodes from the last two years of the Autism Helper podcast. Now, this one comes in number one, over 10,000 listens and downloads on episode number six. And I knew this one was going to be one I included because this is one that is kind of close to my heart. This episode isn't about the nuts and bolts of behavior change. It's not particularly about action items. It's about mindset. And so what what I want to share now is episode number six, Handling Student Aggression. And I think this episode is the most listened to because this is something that is such a challenge. Whether you are an educator, a clinician, a parent, what do we do when our kids are in distress? And when your kids are being aggressive, they're in distress. They need our help. And this episode is about how to get, first of all, your mindset right. How can you approach this child and this situation with respect? with dignity how can you think about this child as someone's baby I say this a million times there's like 10 sayings that I say a million times and this is one of them every child in your classroom every student on your caseload is someone's baby they might be 18 years old they might be 200 pounds and they might have just punched you in the face but they're someone's baby They're someone's whole world and mom, dad, or that caretaker puts their baby and their whole world onto a school bus or drops them at a doorstep or puts them in front of a computer during e-learning and hopes and prays that they stay safe. And so when it comes to aggression, when it comes to extreme challenging behaviors, there's of course many special, you know, circumstances and things we need to think about here. And this episode highlights a lot of those really important concepts related to getting your mindset right, getting your team right, and what are those first steps you take. So let's jump in with episode six. So let's talk about handling situations where students are displaying extreme or high frequency aggression. Our jobs are really challenging. Our jobs are challenging when there's zero student aggression. So when you throw some extreme behaviors in the mix, it suddenly becomes a real hot mess. These instances can happen in our classrooms because not all of our kids have great means of communication. So remember, all behaviors communication, punching, hitting, kicking, spitting, is communicating something really, really loudly to you. So in these scenarios where we have high frequency or extreme aggression, it makes our jobs go from hard to almost unbearable sometimes. It is extremely, extremely challenging. If you've been in these situations, you are nodding your head going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Or if you're in that situation right now, you maybe have the battle scars to prove it. These situations are draining on our mental well-being, sometimes on our physical well-being, and can honestly make us truly hate our jobs that we once loved. So today I'm going to just talk about some overall tips when you're in this situation. This isn't meant to be a way, you know, way to write a behavior plan. Obviously, you need to do your due diligence and your homework there. Um, I'm not your BCBA or your student's BCBA, but just some overall tips when you are in this situation where you have a student with high frequency or extreme behaviors in your classroom. So the first thing I want to talk about are two kind of guiding principles These aren't necessarily steps, but it's more of a mindset that we need to have as we approach every day or every situation we have when it comes to dealing with aggression or extreme behaviors. So the first principle is recognizing and respecting that this child is someone's baby. This kid is someone's whole world. They have a mom and dad who were excited for this baby to be born and who changed their whole life and probably changed their lives on a daily basis right now for this kid. He's a human. You have to respect him no matter what. No matter, we all know things can kind of get crazy real quick, but just keep in the back of your head always that. This child is someone's baby and someone's whole world, and we need to respect that. And think about if this was my kid, how would I want my kid's teacher acting right now? And if you keep that as like a mindset when you approach situations, I think you can almost rarely go wrong because you are treating that child with love and respect. Yes, that's not behavioral, but we still need to do that. The next guiding principle is one I already mentioned is that all behavior is communication. And oh my gosh, some of these behaviors are really, really, really loudly communicating something to you. So kicking, screaming, hitting, running, taking off clothes. Heck yeah, that is communicating something. And it's communicating something really clear. I quote Dr. King in a lot of my sessions on behavior. He says, violence is the language of the unheard. This quote resonates with me so much because I look at some of the students that I've had or clients that I've worked with that have extreme aggression and think that, wow, this this aggression, this anger is the only means you have to communicate what you want and what you need. And that must be exhausting and that must feel hopeless and that must feel frustrating at every moment that that's all you have. You have no other means of communication that is consistently working for you and that must not be a good place to be in. So if you approach these situations with that mindset that this behavior is communicating something and I am the detective to figure out what it's communicating and getting my kid a better way to communicate the same message in a way that's not aggressive and in a way that's appropriate, you will be on the right track with your behavior plans. So this was a perfect segue into function-based interventions. So I said I was not going to talk about behavior plans, but I can't not talk about behavior plans. So every time we approach a time where we're implementing a behavior plan or a strategy to reduce problem behavior, we have to come from the place of why. You need to look at why this behavior is occurring, which means you need to collect data. It's data first, intervention second. Always, always, always. And I trick people up on this a lot because I give a little pretest, and everyone always gets this one wrong. They think, oh yeah, I'll worry about data second. First, I've got to find the right intervention. But you have to take data to find the right intervention. You have to come from that place of why because we have to figure out what the behavior is trying to communicate. When you work on trying to figure out what the behavior is trying to communicate, then you can pick a function-based intervention, an intervention that'll work towards making this behavior better and not worse. If you don't start from a place of why, you could be selecting an intervention that will actually make the behavior worse. Are you scared? You should be because you don't want the behavior to get any worse. This kid doesn't want the behavior to get any worse. But by haphazardly selecting an intervention out of thin air and being like, well, I'll just try planned ignoring or I'll try a timeout, you might be making the behavior even worse. So make sure that you're starting from that place of why, you're being really thorough on collecting ABC data and getting a good baseline on where to start before you jump in with an intervention. So I said we need to be taking data at the start, And the data doesn't stop there. We need to be collecting data throughout the whole process because we need to know that we're making progress. We need to know where we started. If you started at 30 meltdowns a day in August and it's November and you just had eight meltdowns, awesome, you're making a lot of progress. That's great. But if you didn't have any baseline data to to compare that to, or you were really just starting at like 9 or 10 meltdowns and now you're at 8, then maybe we want to think about how successful and effective our behavior plan is. So data the whole time. And I get it. It's hard to take data on problem behaviors because we're not going to be, you know, mid-punch and be like, hold on a second, honey, let me write down that punch real quick so I can put it in my data, No, it's hard and there's a lot going on and our memories and recollections of the situation might be inaccurate when we add in some data in the afternoon or at the end of the day, but do the best you can. I have a ton of blog posts on little tricks to use click counters or quick and easy data sheets or you can assign a staff member to take data, but you have to take data throughout this whole process. Some of the interventions you might be implementing are hard to implement. Doing a planned ignoring procedure Is extremely hard. Believe me, I have a toddler. I know. But you want to make sure that you're using that intervention in a way that's successful. You want to see that you're having positive movement in the right direction towards reducing that behavior. So don't think that once you know the data collection process is started, you can take a little break. You really have to be diligent. This is the most important place to take data in your classroom. So this might go without saying, but I have to say it. Of course. Safety first. And maybe this seems obvious, but we've all been in those murky waters where we're not quite sure, and we're not sure if we're making the right decisions. Should I evacuate the classroom again and have everyone miss their instruction? Or should I try to keep half of the group in here and try to keep this student safe on the other side of the class? We get put in those gray area situations where we're not sure what steps we need to take to ensure safety. But above all, be as safe as possible. You have my permission to be ridiculously overcautious. It's okay. You would much rather be overcautious, then have to make a phone call to a parent and say that their child was hurt or their child hurt someone. If you have ever had to make those phone calls, it is the worst moment of your teaching career. I've had to make more of those phone calls than I would have liked and it's awful. So above everything, that's what you are avoiding. So if that means that you need to spend most of your energy and attention on developing a strong behavior plan that is going to reduce that problem behavior, that's okay. That's what you need to do right now. It's not going to be that way forever. And I know it feels like you're neglecting the rest of your class, but you're doing what you can to make progress with that student. And then you can get back to regularly scheduled programming.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple.
1: yes, behind the scenes, you are advocating for more help. You are advocating for correct placement. You are advocating for additional paras, etc. But on a day-to-day basis, you are doing everything you can to keep everyone safe. And if that means you are that child's one-on-one aid, the most highly qualified kick-ass one-on-one aid, good. That's fine. You're keeping everyone safe. In the moment, I know it feels weird and it feels wrong and you feel pulled in multiple directions and you feel like you're wronging the rest of the kids and you are, but all you can focus on in this scenario is making sure that no one gets hurt. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about how you're doing. You, the teacher, not the student. This plays a really big role in your life. If you're in this situation now where you have a student that has really extreme aggression, you're probably struggling because it's really hard. It's hard on your mental health. It's hard on your physical health. It makes us get burned out at our jobs really quickly. And if this makes you feel better, I have been there a lot of times. Other teachers are there right now. And it's okay that you're struggling And you need to cut yourself some slack. It is not your fault that this child is having a hard time. It is not your fault that this child doesn't yet have a great means of communication. He will. He doesn't now. But you're working on it. And so is he. And you need to not take on that burden and responsibility of feeling like it's your fault. And you need to prioritize self-care. You have to take care of yourself. You need to figure out whatever works for you to make you feel less stressed and more capable of handling your job. So think about the last time you got on an airplane and they do the whole intro session thing that no one really listens to. Talk about where the exits are. They talk about how to put your seatbelt on. Like no one's ever been on an airplane. But what do they say next? They talk about the air masks. And what do they say with the air mask? They say that you should put it on yourself first, then put it on your kids around you. Because you need to take care of yourself. If you pass out because you don't have enough oxygen, you can't help anyone else. And it's the same thing with your job. If you don't take care of you, you will not be able to take care of your students. And your students need you. So you need to prioritize self-care it's not an option. You need to make sure you're having enough sleep. You need to make sure you're eating well. You're exercising. You're spending time with family. You're turning off your phone. You're turning off your work emails. You're watching Netflix. You're eating cookies. You're drinking wine. Whatever you got to do, do it. So you have to make sure that you're really working on this. And if it felt good when I said that I've been there, That's okay. I'm not judging. It feels good to know that other people have been through the same hard scenarios that we've been through, so we don't feel like we're crazy. I have dealt with this as a brand new teacher, and I have dealt with this as a veteran teacher, and it stinks either way. It's almost harder as a veteran teacher because you feel like you should know what to do. I dealt with these situations when I was a BCBA. I have my master's degree. I spent 1,500 hours of supervision working on these theories. I spent many thousands of dollars getting a degree in behavior. And I was still stuck. And I was still struggling. And as Dr. Stephen Shore says, if you've met one individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. So no matter how veteran of a teacher you are, no matter how much experience you have with behavior, or even if you're a BCBA, there are still certain kids and certain scenarios that will bring us right back to day one. And it usually happens after we have a year where we feel like we rocked it. Don't ever let yourself put your guard down because that next year is going to be rough. So be kind to yourself. Take care of yourself. A lot of these things can really wreak havoc on our physical health. Many years ago, I had a student that was really, really struggling. And for about five months, I had hives on my legs every single night. Like I would scratch and scratch and scratch until the point that they bled. I went to the dermatologist a million times. I kept switching my detergent, trying to think of what I was eating. I was keeping a food log. And finally, the dermatologist was started asking me questions about my life, which I thought was very odd. And I was explaining how work had been really hard and, you know, a little bit about that. And she looked at me and was like, it's stress. And I was completely shocked. I had, I don't know why I didn't put it together, probably because I was very stressed. But, and I, I knew it in the back of my head, but I didn't let myself really acknowledge it. This was the same year that I lost three pairs of gym shoes because I would just leave them at the gym, Don't worry, I had other shoes to wear home. I wasn't that crazy. But I would go work out in the morning, change, go to work, and just leave my gym shoes at the gym because I was literally losing my mind. I also left my car running during a one-hour meeting on a busy street in Chicago. Not I left my keys in the car. I left my car actually running for one hour. So when things like that start happening to you and you realize you are losing your mind, realize that this is affecting your mental and physical health and you need to take your health back. Meditate, do yoga, do any of those other fun things that I mentioned earlier, but prioritize your self-care first in these situations. Remember, you can't take care of anyone else if you aren't taking care of yourself first. Okay, so last tip here. We just talked about self-care, but let's talk about how we take care of our team. So your paraprofessionals, man, do you need them in these scenarios? Take care of them. You need to make sure that on these hard days that you spend time, whether it's that afternoon or the following day, reflecting with your team. Go over what went right, what went wrong, and make sure on these really, really crappy days where it seems like literally nothing went right, that you give them lots of great feedback and praise because it feels good to be told you're doing a good job. It feels amazing to be told that you're doing a good job on a day that went horribly. On a day where you feel like everything stunk and someone still finds something that you did well, that feels good. And this is a thankless field. You can probably remember the last time an administrator really told you thank you in a way that they meant it. So don't let your staff feel that way. Make sure you tell your staff on a regular basis thank you and how great they are, but ensure that on those hard days where there's major behavioral incidents, that you are also thanking them and providing praise then. So I mentioned this idea of reflecting with your team. I'm a huge advocate and proponent of team reflection and looking for discussion opportunities and ways to improve behavior plans. But this conversation is a really slippery slope to just pure venting and complaining. Because on a hard day, we complain about our hard days. And there's some venting that's healthy. But you as the leader of your team, do not vent to your staff. You can go home, You can vent all night to your spouse or your roommate or your mom or your best friend. I give you full permission. They can know all the details. You can talk about it all damn day, but you cannot vent to your staff. You are the leader. You need to lead them. You need to set the example of positivity, of problem solving, of finding the next step. Because if you let it go to complaining town, that's where you're all going to live. And it is not fun to live there. No one likes to live in complaining town. All they do is complain. So you need to set the tone. If staff members do complain, that's all right, but redirect. Provide a prompt. Yes, today was horrible. Yes, this isn't the right placement. Yes, we need more staff, but we did this great. Or, but our next idea is to do this. So make sure you're always putting that positive spin on that. So, the example with venting here is make sure that you bitch up. Yes, I swore on the podcast because I do swear in real life, guys. So, when I say bitch up, that means you can bitch to anyone above you. You can bitch to the case manager, to your administrators, obviously, do that respectfully, but you cannot bitch to anyone that's working below you or on your team. So, your staff, you cannot complain to them. They know it's hard, they know this stinks. You don't need to say that. You don't need to go there. So ensure that every time you have a conversation about reflection, it ends on a problem-solving note. So remember, take care of your team. Take care of yourself. Cut yourself some slack. You're doing a really, really good job. I don't know you, and I know you're doing a good job. Remember, safety first. Above everything, safety is the most important thing when you step foot into your classroom. And let's tie it back to our student. He needs a function-based intervention. He needs an intervention that helps him figure out a better means to communicate what he's communicating. Because remember those two guiding principles I mentioned? All behavior is communication. Aggression, running, self-injury is communicating something. It's communicating that this child wants attention or escape or is uncomfortable or needs a break. And it's our job to figure out what the behavior is communicating and teach a new way to communicate that. And our second guiding principle was that this child or this teenager is someone's baby. This is someone's kid. This is someone's whole world. And every interaction you have with this child, you should be thinking, how would I want someone treating my own child? Treat this human with respect. Don't talk about him or her in front of him. That is one of my biggest pet peeves and ensure that you're treating him with dignity and keeping him or her safe. So think about that next time we go into these interactions. And I know when it's been going on for a long time and it's really the school district or the school that's failing us because we're not provided the resources we need or the support we need. I get it. It's frustrating, but it's not that child's fault. And it's not those parents' fault. So keep those true guiding principles close to your heart. This is someone's child and this behavior is communicating something. And as long as you always come from there, you will most likely be on the right track. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, My goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.